0: Well, we do hope that you're having a great day at Prestonwood so far, and I do want to extend that word of welcome to you from Lance. My name is Jonathan Teague. I have the joy of serving as our senior associate pastor here at Prestonwood, and I bring you greetings from our Plano campus, and such a joy to be able to come and preach God's word to you and over you today. It is nice and full in here, and here's what I love about that. If you're a little bit newer to our church, particularly here at our north campus... Um, whenever a room like this gets filled or we got to redeploy or go to a different space, here's what it means. It means God is on the move and we should celebrate. Amen? Yeah. And so that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're celebrating the fact that God is adding to our number and multiplying the work of this ministry here at our north campus. And, man, a little bit of walls and paint and dirt and carpet, it ain't no thing when it comes to being obedient to the will of God. And so we're going to do that and we're going to be faithful and we're going to pray. And I know you. Are being faithful with your generosity, your stewardship, and your serving and of your time. And just being here, church family, just says so much about how much you love one another and how much you believe in what God is doing in this place. So if you're a little bit more new to our church, hey, get ready. It's going to be an awesome summer. We hope this isn't the last time that you're with us. We hope you'll come every week and experience all that God is doing in the life of this church called Prestonwood. If you will, if you have a copy of God's word, I hope you are open your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We are in a series of messages right now called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. Can't imagine what better story we could tell than that of Jesus and his love. And we're actually in a series within a series, if you will, because we've been working through the gospel of John and through the seven miracles that John records. Now, The end of the Gospel of John will tell us that Jesus does way more than these seven, but these particular seven, the encounters that Jesus has, the people that he meets and the things that he does, they're so powerful that the Holy Spirit, as he preserves his word for us, made sure that we could read these stories some 2,000 years after they took place. So here at Preston, when we preach and teach right out of God's word as authoritative and errant and inspired, we believe that it is faithful to every part of our life to guide us in how we follow God, and so that's... The place from which we come is the open word of God. And we want to read it and understand it and apply it. Because the message of today is that Jesus is the light of the world. And through this encounter in John's gospel in chapter 9, we're going to meet a man who's been blind, the Bible tells us, since birth. He was born blind. And he's going to have an encounter with Jesus And what we're going to learn through his encounter with Jesus, what this story is going to teach and reveal to us, is that Jesus has come to light up the darkness in our lives. Now, some of you music aficionados out there, you may be thinking that I'm quoting the great theologian Bob Marley there. Well, not so much, right? Because... It's true. We're going to learn about the light of the gospel of Jesus in this story, and we're going to see that every dark corner of our hearts and of our lives can be fully restored, in fact, can be made new when the light of Jesus shines on us. So we're going to meet a guy who experiences that in a miraculous way with Jesus, and then we're going to learn three things together as a result of this miraculous encounter. Now, chapter 9 does have 41 verses, and so... Fear not, we did get through them all last hour. They got out, you got in, praise God, okay? So, But we're, we'll take you through this story because it's worth all of it knowing and understanding and in your own personal time with the Lord this week. I hope you'll read all of it exhaustively, but we are gonna make our way through this entire chapter because it's so good and it reveals so much to us about who Jesus is and what he wants to teach us. I, I think perspective is so helpful you know, we're being asked this morning to have some perspective, make some changes and adjustments as a church family, and you're doing an incredible job. I'm so proud of you. And I, I brought a picture with me to maybe sort of illustrate the power of perspective. I want you to see this on the screen. I, I, maybe you've seen this picture. It's gone a little viral the last few weeks, but that's my girl right there in the middle of that picture. She is awesome. I don't know her name, but she gets it. Because, you know, so much of 2023 is what everybody else is doing, isn't it? You know, you have these incredible moments, these once-in-a-lifetime moments. And I worry, friends, that we're missing all the moments because our phones are always up. And this girl, she, she gets it, doesn't she? She's got the perspective. You know, sometimes in life, you're going to be surrounded by people who think they grasp the meaning of the moment. And the reality is you may be the only one that sees it clearly for what it is. This is the man in John chapter 9. He has a gospel perspective that helps him see what no one else could. We're going to meet all kinds of interesting people in this story. and All of them are going to reveal these ever-growing ironies of light and darkness and sight and blindness. And Jesus is going to use all of this to point us to the fact that he's coming. And he has come to light up the darkness of our lives. So let's look in John chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, verses 1 through 7. I do want to read these to you because it sets the table for what God's doing in this story. John 9, beginning in verse 1, says, As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which is a Jewish word for teacher, means this is a person who has authority. So we're going to ask Jesus a question because we figured he'll know the answer. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Another translation says, Jesus, explain this guy's blindness to us. Was it the result of his sin or his parents' sin? Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. And verse 7 is one of two miracles that will happen in this story. Now, this man's encounter teaches us, as I said a moment ago, three things. And the first is this. This encounter teaches us that the light of Jesus always brings clarity. I don't know about you, but I think we could use a healthy dose of clarity in 2023. Seems to be a lot of crazy out there and a lot of confusion. I love that the gospel always brings clarity. And that's what this encounter shows us. That we see that because of the false poor, bad theology of the disciples surrounding the issues of suffering and sin. I mean, look at the question that they asked Jesus. And and by the way, nobody bothers to walk by this poor man who the scripture tells us is of age, later we'll find out. So in Jewish culture, that's, get ready for it, teenagers 13 or older. So heads up. Uh, That's how it worked in the first century. So he's old enough to fend for himself, beg on the street, because he's born blind. Now think about that born blind doctors would call it congenital blindness meaning from the womb into life blind this guy had never seen a sunset never seen the inside of the temple never seen the face of his mother never glimpsed at any of God's creation or his beauty he's born blind But because of bad theology and a poor understanding, in verse 2, when Jesus and the disciples pass by this man who's blind and begging, the disciples don't see him to try to meet his need. They start to ask really, really dumb theological questions. It's okay, we can say that now. I checked with the scholars. We can call it dumb. It's all right. These are dumb questions. But they've come out of a religious disposition. So before we're so quick to judge them... Let's be careful because we're asking the same kinds of questions even today. They ask him, Jesus, who sinned? Him or his parents? In other words, they had succumbed to what we might call, for those of us who grew up in church, really bad Sunday school lessons, okay? The Pharisees had a theology that they were teaching, the religious teachers of the day. They were teaching that every point of suffering in your life could be connected to a sin you have committed. So with every sin comes some kind of suffering. And so the disciples sort of show their theological hand here a little bit. Even in the shadow of the footsteps of Jesus, they're still trying to come out of that poor way of thinking. And so what's most honest in their hearts comes out of their mouth. And in that moment they say, Jesus, according to what we think is true about this guy, he must be blind because somebody made a mistake or because he sinned. Now, does the Old Testament speak to the realities of sin and its effect on the nation? Sure, Exodus 20. Does it speak to the realities of, of how sin can, be, uh, can contaminate and ruin uh, families in every way? Sure, of course it does. Exodus 18 and other places. Hosea 12 talks about this. There's even a wild verse in Genesis 25. Go look it up where Jacob and Esau wrestle in their mom's womb. I, I don't know how that works. They disagree, the Bible says, but it's real. All right? But none of that has to do with the theological conclusion the disciples draw. That's all a poor understanding of the Old Testament that lands them in a place not of compassion and not gospel clarity, but simply of asking the wrong question. And we do this today. At the end of the day, all of us have the reflex in us when we see things in the world that are broken or fractured or lost. All of us ask this either out loud or in our hearts. Well, whose fault is it? Parents, if you're raising kids, it's a question that we ask 736,000 times a day. <laughs> Whose fault is it? Who did this? There's always a fault. And notice the disciples see the effect of the man's life and they assume it has a cause. The guy's blind, somebody must have blown it, or he must have had a terrible sin issue. Even in the womb, he must have sinned. And all of it stems from a greater reality. Because although they are wrong in their theological diagnosis, they're not wrong when it comes to the reality of all of our hearts. Because unknowingly, what the disciples have conceded is what's still true today. Friends, our world is broken. And it's broken because it's full of people. And people without Jesus are broken. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. I decided to pick the really cheery parts of the passage to get us going this morning, okay? The reality of the world, friends, is that we're broken by sin. That's just true. If you've heard another kind of gospel or preaching, you haven't heard the gospel. There's death and disease and brokenness and crumbling of culture and chaos in our civic life and all the rest. Because of sin. Sin abounds in the heart of mankind. That's the truth and the reality of our world. And so whereas the disciples are poorly applying theology, they are stumbling into something that's still true for you and I today because we are no longer residents of the garden. And the moment that mankind left the presence of God in the garden in Genesis 3, the world was broke. And worse, we don't possess the ability to fix it. And so although jesus corrects their poor thinking about how this guy got this way he does suffer from what he suffers from because of the reality that we live in a context where we're going to suffer where people are going to get sick where we're going to die one day unless jesus comes to get us first where we're going to have problems we're going to have disagreements we're not always going to get along because sin has broken the world and broken our hearts and where jesus concedes that he also qualifies his ministry and says but guys here's the deal I have been sent. I have come to do the work that only I can do. And I'm going to get down to business, verse 4 and 5, right now. Because I'm only with you for a short time. And while I'm with you, I want you to see the light. Because one day when I go, and this is us today, when I'm gone physically, I'll live in you spiritually, and you will be the light one day. So Jesus wants them to catch the glimpse of his goodness by what he does in the life of this man. So he does something amazing. He takes a little bit of spit and a little bit of mud... And he mixes it up. Now, by the way, if you come and serve at Adventure Week, we will let you do this miracle with the kids, all right? Which is a one-time offer, all right? He takes the spit and he takes the mud. Now, I can't prove this to you, and scholars go back and forth on this, but there is an echo here to Genesis 2-7 when God took the dust of the earth and made the man. This is Jesus, fully God, fully man, incarnate God, taking the creation and making creation from it. This man to see... He's going to have to literally have new eyes. I'm no ophthalmologist. I think I said that word right. I'm not an eye doctor. There we go. Uh, But I know enough to know that in order for a guy born blind to see, he will need new eyes. And Jesus takes his spit and his mud and mixes it together and makes clay out of it and puts it on the man's eyes. Now, time out. I have no idea the last time this man has ever had anyone touch him at all. I don't know when it was the last time anybody ever gave him the time of day, but Jesus does. And I wonder if Jesus does this miracle the way he does it, because he wants this guy to not just see the light, but to feel the touch of the master. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you need Jesus to touch your life in a special way. I mean, Jesus could have done this miracle 1,000 different ways. Uh, Hey, you've got new eyes. Congratulations. Oh, I see. Uh, I, hey, I'm going to walk past this guy, and as like I'm 100 yards down the road. By the way, you can see now, he could do it 100 different ways, couldn't he? Jesus could have healed this guy any way he wanted, but he takes the spit and the mud and he makes the clay out of it and he puts it on the man's eyes. And then he's the sent one. This is so cool. The sent one sends this one to the sent pool. Do you see what he's doing there? Jesus says in verse 5 and 6, he comes down here to the gospel and he says, Having said these things, he spits on the ground and north the man's eyes. Look at verse 7. And he says to him, Now, With clay face, like I'm I'm a dad of girls, so I'm learning what facials are. Just pray for me, okay? So there's like this thing, right? Jesus says, now that your eyes are covered in mud. And by the way, notice here, there's no dialogue between him and the man. The guy never asks to be healed. He never asks, who is it that's there talking to me? Who just touched me? He doesn't ask for the guy's name. There's no conversation in the quickness and the pace of the moment. The master gets right down to the work of the miracle. And this guy gets a touch from Jesus goes to the Pool of Siloam. It's in the south part of Jerusalem. Some of you, I was talking to a guy after the last service who just got back from Jerusalem, went to the Pool of Siloam. You can still go there. It does mean sent pool. It's on the south side of the city. I have no idea how long it took this guy to get from where he is to where that pool was. And I have no idea who went with him, and I have no idea how difficult that journey was. But I'll bet you anything when we get to heaven, I can't wait to sit down with this guy and ask him this question. I got a whole list of heaven people I want to hang out with. This guy's one of them. And I want to ask this guy, hey, man, from the moment Jesus put the mud on your eyes until you washed it off and you saw for the first time, what was going through your mind? Man, you talk about a faith walk. You talk about going, okay, this guy is about to put something on my face. Now he's done it. This is weird, okay? I'm now, not, now I'm not healed. I have to sit here with mud eyes, and i got to walk for whoever knows how long to a pool. When I get to the pool, i got to wash, and when I wash, what's going to happen? Jesus doesn't even make the promise of healing. He just simply says, look at the verse. He says, go and wash in the pool. He does not say go, and when you get there and you wash, you'll be healed. He gives him zero money-back guarantee on this one, okay? It's the worst kind. He just simply says, go and wash. And this guy, I bet because he's desperate to see, says, okay. And he goes to the pool of Siloam, the scent pool, and when he gets there, he takes the water. And can you just stand there with him at the pool for just a second? And can you put that water in your hands and wash it splash across his face? And as the mud melts away, the lights come on. And he sees with new eyes for the first time ever. Can you imagine the joy, the excitement, the thrill of being able to see? Jesus does what only he can do. He shines the light and it makes everything clear. And I love this part of the story because Jesus' clarity, his light, does a couple of things that I think maybe you need to hear and I need to hear this morning. You know, when Jesus debunks the false theology of sin and suffering for the disciples, he replaces it with a good gospel theology. And I really do believe we need this today, this understanding first of these issues surrounding sin. There's a lot of people, particularly people who have grown up in church, I'm not entirely sure what all the reasons are for this, but, but I've met them, I, and, the, and the people I disciple, the folks we pray with, the marriages that we counsel as pastors, this comes up all the time. This issue around sin and the stuff that's wrong in my life, or the feelings that I feel that God can't love me. Listen to me. Somebody else's sin does not determine your access to God. Just because somebody wronged you or messed with your life or is in the middle of attacking you right now doesn't mean that you can't have access to God's love. It doesn't mean that God doesn't know your story. It doesn't mean that God's not with you. What somebody else did to you does not have to say, make a say in who you're going to be in Christ. That's not a theology of sin that we embrace with the gospel. And your sin does not prevent your access to God's love. A lot of people struggle with this one. They say, well, I've got these problems and these issues and these struggles and these breakdowns. And so therefore, I bet you anything, man, if, if y'all found out in church what was really true about me, I wouldn't be welcome and God wouldn't love me. Can I just give you a little hint on something? If you're a little bit newer to Christianity or you're visiting our church for the first or kind of the first season of visiting with us, can I just go ahead and like just decompress the pressure on that one for you? Um, there are zero perfect people in this room, including right here. Zero. What this church is full of is people... Who have seen the light of the gospel of Jesus, received him by faith. They accepted that amazing grace we sang about. And now we live in the light and the love and the truth of Jesus. And who we are now is not who we were before Christ, but now in Christ we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that's now how we live. That's who we are. Somebody say amen. amen. That's who we are now in Christ. And so this broken theology that was true in the first century and is prevalent in the 21st century. Well, there's sin in my family. There's, there, there's, there, my dad was this way. My grandfather was this way. My great-grandfather was this way. So therefore, therefore, nothing. The power of Christ can break the chains of all of that. Some of you come from families where you're the first generation believer in your family. And if you had bought into this theological lie that the Pharisees were espousing, you would have never come to Christ because the sins of fathers or grandfathers or mothers or grandmothers or friends in your life or people around you, you would construe that whatever bad thing you're going through is a result of what they did. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus can free anybody, anywhere, anytime from anything and this guy experienced this in real time and that's what the gospel does friends it illuminates with clarity that which seems confusing some of us need a little shot of clarity this morning be reminded that the light of jesus makes things clear and by the way please please don't make the mistake of associating a low degree of somebody in somebody's life of suffering as meaning that they have a high degree of righteousness in their life. This is the the root of the whole, why do good things happen uh, to bad people and bad things happen to good people? The reality is, if we took the lid off God's sovereignty, we would find out that all bad things would happen to all people all the time. The amount of things, the restrictor plate that God has put on the universe to prevent the bad stuff to come into your life, we'll never even know, maybe till heaven. All the mess and all the stuff and all the things that God protects us from. Some of we don't even see and don't even know because it's in the spiritual realm. But there's a thought out there. There's a thinking that says, well, if I don't suffer in my life, I must be really righteous. There's whole world religions that are built around the false ideology that the less I suffer, the more righteous I must be. Can I just tell you, I got off the phone the other day with a church member who is facing death. And he is suffering and struggling In a major way. But let me just tell you, he is facing this season of his life with such incredible grace and character and Christ-likeness. Every time I'm with him, I learn something new about following Jesus. And I tell him that. Every time we talk and pray together, he's teaching me more of what it means to follow Jesus. The reality is, friends, because of Jesus and because of following him, we may have suffering in our lives. In fact, some of the most faithful Christians I know... Have suffered greatly and are still loving Jesus this guy's blindness isn't the result of sin his parents or his Jesus says this has happened today so that you guys can see the marvelous miracle that I'm about to do that's the kind of clarity that Jesus wants us to have but not only that the light of Jesus sparks a little controversy I ain't talking about the kind of controversy that you see online. I'm not even going there today. Not even going there. But the light of Jesus, because it makes things clear, inevitably is going to create controversy for people that would otherwise live in spiritual skepticism and cynicism. And we won't take the time to read all of the passage, but beginning in verse 8 all the way to verse 34. By the way... Jesus doesn't come back on the scene until verse 35. And in the middle, we're introduced to some interesting people. We meet some neighbors in verses 8 through 12. And they can't even decide if the guy that's been healed is actually the guy that used to be blind. They, they're, they're such great friends and neighbors. They don't even remember if he was blind or not. What, what a great neighbor that would have. Don't ask that neighbor to check your mail. They don't remember if you were blind, okay? Then in verses 13 through 17, the neighbors decide, well, we better take uh, this man who will now call him the man formerly known as Blind. How about that? That's his name now. And let's take him to an interview with the Pharisees, which is kind of like an interview with the spiritual vampire, okay? It just sucks the life out of you. And so in verses 13 through 17, they come and they have an interview with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees spend several questions asking this guy his testimony. What happened? What happened? The guy says, well, this guy told me to go and wash, so I went and now I can see. Are you sure? Yeah, the guy said, go and wash, so I went and now I can see. What do you really think happened? Fellas, The guy told me to go and wash. I went, and now I can see you. Like 30 minutes ago, I couldn't have seen you, and now I can. And verses 13 all the way down to verse 23 is the Pharisees debating how sinful Jesus is. Because, oh, by the way, verse 14 tells us that Jesus does this miracle on the Sabbath. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that the Sabbath was the one day that you didn't do any kind of work. Don't think that the Gospel of John in verse 4 doesn't make sure to record the words of Jesus where Jesus said, I came to do the work on the Sabbath. That's like the ultimate Pharisee slam right there. Jesus is doing the only kind of work that matters, but you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are mad about that. They question the guy. This is one of the saddest passages in all the scripture. Beginning in verse 18, they actually call the guy's parents in. Now, students, kids in the room, typically, you do not want your parents to come anywhere near a room where you are in trouble. In sixth grade, my mom was both my teacher and my principal, so every day was a treat, okay? Uh, she's a great teacher, a great principal, but I didn't want to go to the principal's office because it was, well, hanging out with mom. And so you didn't want to get in trouble because you got in trouble twice. This guy's parents, if you read verses 20, 21, and 22, this guy's neighbors, can't even remember if it was him, His religious leaders won't even acknowledge that it happened. His parents, they have to bring his parents in and say, okay, time out. we got three questions for you. Number one, is this your kid? Yes, this is our son. So far, so good. You're being a good parent right now if you claim that you know your child. Good job so far. Step two, was he born blind? Yes, he was born blind. Step three, did Jesus heal him? And you would think the people in your life that ought to have your back the most in the most difficult moments. Moms, dads, we ought to have our kids' backs in their most difficult moments. These parents utterly fail out of fear. And they refuse to acknowledge that their son, who'd been born blind and now can see, was healed by Jesus because John's gospel records that if you start running around saying Jesus healed somebody, we will kick you out of the synagogue. And they are afraid to lose their religious lifeline because they had substituted, ready for this? They had substituted a relationship with God for ritual and religion and routine of the synagogue. Not being in the synagogue means you were disconnected from teaching. You were disconnected from faith community. You were disconnected from your family. It might even cost you your job in Jewish culture. And these parents, rather than seeing the miracle of Jesus and the life of their son and standing with him, they become like the neighbors and the Pharisees, and they'll only go so far and refuse to support their son. And he literally has to stand alone with his family, with his teachers, and with his neighbors all standing in skepticism against him. This guy has an encounter with Jesus, and like the lady on the screen, they've all got their phones in the air thinking they get it, and he's the only one that can actually see what's happening. Do you see the ironies through this story, the light and the darkness, the sight and the blind? Do you see now who's really blind in this story? And so there's this incredible encounter towards the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 24, Where the Pharisees say something that is absolutely upside down, heretical. And it's worth reading because we need to see. Because what they're doing is they're questioning Jesus and his nature and his character and who he is. Because if we can separate God and Jesus, and Jesus can't be God, then he can't do this thing. And if he says he's doing this thing, then he's just another sinner and we can write him off. But if Jesus is God, then he did do this thing and we're in trouble because the house of cards that we've built for our religion is about to tumble before the glory of God. And so verse 24, the Pharisees bring the guy back in for now what is technically his third interview. This poor guy, by the way, has no one bothered to notice nobody has yet to throw a party for this guy? Brother was broken and blind. Now he can see. Nobody at once, at no point in this story, has anybody gone, hey, man, time out. We'll get to the theology in a second. But by the way, it's really cool that you can see now. Nobody. Nobody sees the compassion of the moment. And the reality of this is a person who's broken and who has needs. And let me just tell you, I don't know what you've been taught about church or the Bible or Christians. But let me just tell you something. Here at Prestonwood, we don't just count numbers. We don't just build buildings. We see people. And you matter today. Buildings are great. Rooms of gathering are great. But let me just tell you something. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that every single person in this room matters. And it's valuable before God. And God has a plan for your life. And it begins by you knowing him. But the Pharisees don't get that. Their worldview doesn't make room for that. So in verse 24, here's what they say. This is one of the most tragic verses in all of the scripture, I think. Certainly in the gospels. So in verse 24, they call the man in for the second time. The man who had been blind. And they, listen to the irony. And they said to him, give glory to God. It's like a pharisaical way of saying amen, I guess. Because we know that this man is a sinner. You know who they're talking about there? They're not talking about the blind man. They're talking about Jesus. Do you hear the irony? Give glory to God. Jesus is a sinner. Their moralism, their religion, their skepticism, and their cynicism had blinded them from what was most true right before their eyes. They thought that they saw it, but in reality, they were blind. Jeremiah 13 verse 16 puts it this way. This is sobering. Maybe the Pharisees should have read their Old Testament twice before they made that statement. Jeremiah says, Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. Hyper-religious people think they've seen the light. In the reality, they are walking in darkness. And this is the lesson that the neighbors and the Pharisees and sadly even the parents teach us is that the light of Jesus will spark controversy for people who are walking in darkness. And you know, by the way, Satan's goal for your life, did you know that Satan has a plan for your life? Do you know he has a goal for your life? It's real simple. 2 Corinthians 4.4 puts it this way. In their case, meaning the ungodly, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan, everything in him, Satan wants to be sure that you never see the light. His mission, his work, His life's ambition is to steal and kill and destroy and to be sure that the veil of ungodliness is never lifted from your eyes, but that you remain in darkness. And if he can deceive you like he did the neighbors and the Pharisees and perhaps even these parents, that what you think is light is actually darkness, he can deceive you all the way into hell. And so Jesus comes, and he comes into this moment, and he comes into this situation, and he speaks a different word of life because of his miracle and what he's done. He flips the whole worldview of these folks on its head because of the testimony of this faithful guy who has to stand alone. Starting in verse 30 through 34, he gives this man now formerly born blind. He gives the most, one of the most incredible apologetic responses to the Pharisees' skepticism that you could possibly read in the scriptures. And he says, beginning in verse 30, in a defense of what had happened... This is amazing. You guys don't know where this man came from, and yet he opened my eyes. He says in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Watch verse 33. Watch his faith. Watch his testimony right here. If this were not from God, he, Jesus, could do nothing. If Jesus isn't God, then I guess I'm not healed, fellas. I guess this is a big prank. I'm blind after all. But no, I can see. And this is unprecedented. Nobody's ever done this. Born blind and now can see. I think that only God could do this. And so while you debate the essence of the miracle and the guy who did it, I'm going to go ahead and start to walk by faith that I've been healed. And y'all, i got to tell you, 2,000 years later, I'm not so sure that we've totally outgrown this in the culture. The light of Jesus, when it shined bright, doesn't always make people feel comfortable. That's the nature of the gospel. It reveals what's wrong as much as it relieves from what we need. And the message of the gospel is always going to invoke criticism. We're going to see it in the culture. In the last days, the scripture says things are going to get darker. They're going to get harder. People's hearts are going to be hardened. Kids aren't going to listen to their parents. I don't know, maybe parents aren't going to listen to the kids. Marriages are going to break down. Families are going to fall apart. Governments are going to fight and war. Have you scrolled Twitter in the last hot minute? Folks, I don't know how last days we're living, but the scripture says every day that's not the last day is the next day is the last day. And you and I have no guarantee that today is not the last day. And as the world marches towards the darkness that lives in it, we are called in Christ to shine the light. And here's what I love, man. The darker that things feel in culture, friends, the the brighter our light shines amongst the people that we see. That's why Jesus said, man, who would put a lamp in a house and then put a cover over it? Let it shine. Let your light shine before men, the Bible says, that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven. I love this guy because he's not afraid to let his light shine, even though his neighbors and his religious teachers and even his family won't buy in. He still stands up because I don't know if he knew that Jesus had said this, but Jesus did say in Matthew 5, 10 and 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, listen to me. As you endeavor by faith to shine your light of Jesus brightly around you, don't be shocked if people get uncomfortable and even oppose you. Don't be surprised if people that are stuck in skepticism and cynicism oppose you. And don't be put off. Don't be wobbled in your faith if you experience opposition and even maybe persecution because of following Jesus. Students, in the hallways of your school, when you go back to school, I know you're out of school. I don't want to talk about school. You don't want to talk about school. I get it. But when you go back to school this fall, Man, when you're at sports camps this summer, when you're playing with your friends, when you're hanging out in the neighborhood, when you're doing whatever it is that you do, don't let this be the time where the light stops shining. This guy had every opportunity to cave and to fold when the pressure was on. He's being questioned by the authorities of his day. But he stands up and his testimony passes the test. I wonder if we would have passed the test. I wonder if you're so convictional about your testimony that no matter what persecution or challenge you may face, you're going to lovingly but boldly stand for Jesus and say, he told me to go, and so I went, and I've been washed, and now I can see. Because that leads us to the third and final truth as we close. The light of the gospel brings clarity, and it sure does spark controversy, but here's the deal. The light of Jesus delivers the cure that we need. I find it interesting that all throughout this passage, the Pharisees, the neighbors, the parents, the disciples are all arguing and debating and discussing who's to blame, whose fault is it, who went wrong, when the reality, friends, is they're asking the wrong question. The question that you and I ought to be asking today that they should have known then is not, Whose fault is it? Who do we blame? The only question that matters in the light of the love of Jesus is who can fix it? And his name is Jesus. And he brings the cure for the blindness in our own lives. Jesus meets this guy in verse 35. I love this passage. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he asked the man, do you believe? The man says, yes, I believe, and he worships Jesus. Aren't you glad this morning that Jesus knows where the outcasts are? Aren't you glad today that Jesus is coming and looking for you today? We have no record that this guy went looking for Jesus. It's 26, 7, 8 verses later. All we know is this guy is pinned down and being interrogated. And Jesus finds him. Cast out, Jesus invites him in. Left out, Jesus says, you're now part of my family. No love, Jesus says, I've got the love that you need Jesus says come and follow me and the man believes by faith you know I think this story is teaching us that the light of Jesus delivers the cure and that we need to be like this man formerly born blind who now sees we need the cure in our hearts and we need it when we get it and there's a lot of people here today that at some point in their life they've crossed the line of faith and they've trusted Jesus and you have everything that you need in Christ praise God for you Our reminder then from this story is to walk in the humility that this man walked in. He believed Jesus. He followed Jesus. He trusted Jesus. He surrendered all to Jesus. He said, my chains are gone. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light, the burden of my heart was rolled away, the old song says. That's this guy. This cure we've received, the blindness that goes away. We ought to walk in humility and be ready with compassion to meet people and give a word of faithful testimony to all those that we would meet. But listen to me. I want to say this as we close. Some of us here today are no different than the Pharisees in this story. We are convinced that we see the world just fine and that we have no need of God. We are locked up in a worldview that says, I got it and I don't need it. And where maybe somebody else needs that cure, I don't. And Jesus speaks a harsh word in the midst of a joyful story of extreme gospel clarity. And we'd fail you if we didn't say it to you today. Jesus says in verses 40 and 41, I've come for those who are blind that they may see, but those who think that they see, your guilt has already condemned you. And so if you're here today and you would say, you know what the reality is? My life sounds a lot more like that than it does this guy that was formerly born blind. Instead of humility, I walk in a lot of pride, a lot of arrogance. I'm trying to do this on my own. I'm trying to build it out my own way. I'm trying to get by my own strength. And I'm starting to find out that that doesn't work. It's failing me. I got real problems, real struggles, real questions, and very, very few Answers. The problem with people that are constantly skeptical and cynical about the gospel is that there's never enough answers to satisfy all of their questions. And maybe today, if you're like that person, what you need to do is you need to ask God to come and crush your pride today. And let today be the day where you say, Jesus, I'm tired of running. I'm tired of questioning. I'm putting all the questions aside, and I'm ready for the answer. Because I know the world's broke, and I know I can't fix it. But I know you died on the cross and rose again so that I could have life abundant and eternal. It's time for me to get crushed so that I can be cured. With every head bowed, every eye closed, we're going to move into a time of invitation to close our service. We do this every week. This is our time to be with God and to ask him to come into this place be present in our lives, and for some of you here today, I would just say this, the invitation couldn't be more clear. If you are who I just described in a moment when we stand and we sing, that is going to be your cue. I don't want you to pray about it. I don't want you to think about it. I don't want you to ponder it. You know without any shadow of a doubt that the light of Jesus Christ does not live in you. That You are going your own way. You're doing your own thing, and the truth of the gospel has been made known and clear to you today. You've got the clarity. Now, do you want to walk in more controversy, or are you ready for the cure? In a moment, when we stand and we sing, that's your cue. I want you to step out of these aisles. I want you to find a minister at the front, and I want you to say, I'm ready to see today. I'm ready for the lights to come on in my life. I'm ready to be saved and to settle it today once and for all. Some of you would say, Jonathan, I'm saved. I love Jesus. I've been cured. I see now in Christ. Praise God. But I'm struggling. I'm suffering. I'm hurting. I got stuff in my life, things on my heart. Maybe your invitation today is to come down, make this front, this room, this altar right here to talk to one of our ministers and say, will you pray for me? There's power in that to make this altar a place where you say, I want to bow before the Lord. I need God to meet me where I am. I don't know what God wants to do in your life, but I'm convinced. I'm convinced of this this morning. We prayed for this as a staff, that before you leave today, if you need your life changed, that you would come. To Jesus. So, Father, that's our prayer. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to worship like we mean it. We're not going to worship like Pharisees. We're going to sing to the Lord. We're going to shout to him and we're going to celebrate because in just a moment, God, you're going to add to your family. Some blind people are about to become seers of the Lord Jesus for the first time. And we can't wait to celebrate, God. What you're going to do is you add to your kingdom. So, Lord, this moment is yours. This time is yours. And this room is yours. And we give it to you in the power of the name of Jesus. We pray amen